This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, as we said at the top of the show, uh, Jamie Dimon, he is a voice everyone listens to. J.P. Morgan earnings out today. Jamie Dimon back uh, from very serious uh, surgery, but he is back in the seat. He is as lively as ever. Let's check out a little bit of what he had to say. The bad economy has very adverse consequences way beyond just the economy. You know, in terms of mental health, domestic abuse, uh, uh, substance abuse, et cetera. So we, a rational plan to get back to work is a good thing to do. Uh, and, you know, hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later, but it won't be May. You know, you about June, July, August. All right. So June, July, August, that seemed to set a little bit of a tone. And people, as I said, really listen to Jamie Dimon, uh, someone who knows this bank inside and out. We count on her for her insights is Michelle Davis, finance reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Vermont, one of the hardest working reporters out there. Uh, Michelle, good to have you with us on such a busy day. Thank you. All right, so everybody checking out what uh, JD was having to say. He seems like uh, he's back to his old uh, self in in many ways. What did he say that was most notable uh, from the perspective of not just uh, investors in the bank, but sort of the world at large? Because he's a statesman of sorts at this point. Yeah, definitely. Um, Well, I think the most notable thing just in terms of what it means for the whole economy was – the fact that, you know, J.P. Morgan's profit fell to the lowest in more than six years. Um, He had previously said that, you know, the bank wouldn't be immune to fallout from the pandemic and that he was predicting a bad recession. But uh, the comments that you guys highlighted earlier about wanting to, you know, get people back to work and and reopen the economy were also, I would say, very interesting because, um, you know, something that there's a lot of debate about right now. And, um, that uh, I don't think anyone really knows like how soon this is going to happen. The one definitive thing he did say is he doesn't think it will happen before May. Um, and the other thing he mentioned that I thought was pretty interesting is that, uh, you know, after he had heart surgery, a lot of people thought that, you know, this pretty severe surgery would, would cause him to reevaluate, you know, his life choices, possibly retire earlier than anticipated. Um, and he totally, you know, knocked those assumptions away and said that he was really eager to get back to work, that, um, you know, having undergone this this surgery uh, did not change any of his, his retirement plans, um, even though it did uh, underscore the strength of, of the bank's bench and the fact that, you know, managers were able to carry on without him for the, for the four weeks that he was away. I love what he said, the quote that you guys have. I'm walking several miles a day. I like working. I've been working for several weeks now. It doesn't really change very much how I view the world. So he's out there front and center. I thought also what was interesting, um, not only his take, and I, I do agree with Jason that we are looking at leaders, you know, that transcend their industry to get an idea of, okay, how do we come back from this virus? When do we reopen the economy, especially when you've got such uh, seemingly a battle between what's going on in Washington versus governors on the front lines in various states, certainly here in the New York metro area. Um, but it's interesting, you know, 
what he had to say because I think we are we are looking to these types of individuals to get an idea of okay how do we come back when do we come back exactly and uh, something that he didn't mention today but that was in his annual letter last week was that he thinks uh, testing and access to testing is going to be something that's going to be really crucial to reopening the economy and, and getting people back to work. All right, Michelle Davis, we are going to leave it there. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, coronavirus cases are surpassing 1.93 million deaths are topping about 120 or 121,000 around the world. U.S. stocks, though, they are shrugging that off because they're really rallying on signs the virus spread is easing and there's more talk globally of countries and economies reopening. Let's talk about the realistic expectation of that with Dr. Joanne Roberts, Chief Quality Officer, Providence St. Joseph Health, on the phone from Everett, Washington. You might recall the first U.S. case of the virus was confirmed in Washington State at Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett, which is that part of that Providence St. Joseph health system. Um, Dr. Roberts, nice to have you here with us. There is an awful lot of talk about reopening um, economies around the globe. And at the same time, we're hearing a lot of individuals, including J.P. Morgan Chase uh, CEO Jamie Dimon, also the governor of Massachusetts. Everybody says more testing, more testing. How do you see it? Can we reopen without doing more testing? Um, yeah, so thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, um, Carol. Um, I do think uh, testing uh, is going to, to be a, a requirement for us reopening. Uh, we already are talking about just on the healthcare side, about what the world may look like as we slowly uh, reopen our systems. Uh, We're looking at the backup of things like surgery for slow-growing cancers that had been put on pause uh, as we responded to the acute phase, and folks are going to need that care. The question is, how do we deliver that care in a safe way? Uh, We have certainly figured out how to isolate our COVID patients from all other patients. We know that our emergency rooms and our, and our surgery uh, departments are free of COVID uh, because we've done such a good job of testing in the hospitals. But because testing is still limited, we just are not able to know where our communities are and how many people are infected out in the community, which is really difficult then to know Uh, exactly how quickly we should all come back online. And so, Dr. Roberts, help us understand from from your perspective and and for a layman like myself, what does effective testing and tracing look like? What what could a, you know, regular person, you know, a a regular well person reasonably expect in, in terms of our daily lives going forward if we get what we need in place? So if we have testing available, and that's both testing for people with infection, either before they have symptoms or after symptoms, so that's one set of tests. And the other set of tests are the tests for antibodies, which shows who's been infected. We need both. We have some, we have pretty, we have improving testing on that active infection side. We still have gaps on the antibody side. But once we have those, Then we can go into communities, uh, test people randomly in a sampling, uh, a statistical sample, and then understand more deeply 
where the infection clusters lie. So Mm. a small community might have a lot of infections of asymptomatic people. We might have communities or areas of communities that we have a lot of immunity built up. And it would be important to know that uh, uh, in both in these economic discussions and in the healthcare discussions. All right. So you're talking about test to see who has the antibodies, test to see who has had the virus itself or who might have it. That's a lot of testing. Um, Do we have the tests out there? Is it just a case that our medical community, understandably, is consumed with just taking care of people right now that have the virus? Is that why we're not getting things done? What's the holdup? So we don't have those tests right now. So the medical community is going on the proposition that until proven otherwise, people are, could be effect, infected. So we deliver our care in a, with a lot of equipment to keep right. everybody safe. But on the broader economy issue, um, we don't have the test yet. We don't know what the best antibody test is going to be. We have quite a few out there on the market. Um, this is a complex virus to test for. So when testing the antibodies, we have to know which antibodies are the ones that are going to be correlated with immunity uh, to the to future COVID infection, if any. Hmm. And so, Dr. Roberts, in, in just a sort of minute or so we have left, what have you learned uh, that maybe given that you guys were ahead of the, the curve, as it were, you dealt with this earlier than even though the infection may have been the same, you certainly dealt with it earlier than we did here on the East Coast. What have you learned that, that you know we might be thinking about, and especially maybe for some of the folks who are listening in areas where it hasn't really hit yet and may still? Um, I'll tell you what I have learned is communities come together in a crisis. Um, so despite what decisions are being made on a policy level, we see communities coming together to help one another out. And that's a wonderful part of a crisis, as painful as a crisis is. Um, the second piece that I've learned is that our country has to prepare better for pandemics. We've always prepared well for things like hurricanes and yeah. earthquakes, but this is something of a totally different magnitude that we have to be thinking about always do you think we are thinking about it? Are you hearing from, you know, folks that you work with on a federal and a state level that we're thinking about it better? Only got about 30 seconds. Um, not yet. I think, yeah. it's, I think it's not the time to have that discussion. I think uh, once things settle down, we'll all have to sit down and be honest with one another about how prepared we were and how prepared we need to be. Yeah, and let's not, right, you, and we can't go back. Like, we've got to make this part of our emergency planning yeah. uh, going forward. Exactly. Uh, We have to hope for the best and plan for the worst. Absolutely. Uh, Well, we really appreciate your work and your colleagues there. Uh, Dr. Joanne Roberts, Chief Quality Officer at Providence St. Joseph Health, on the phone from Everett, Washington. And Carol, as you said, I mean, these guys have been an invaluable resource for us, us, uh, Dr. Roberts and and her colleagues, especially uh, Dr. Amy Compton-Phillips, who joined us in the early stages of this to help us understand what was going on. I felt a lot smarter in terms of being able to deal with it, even sort of from a community perspective. Uh, knowing what they know. And what Dr. Roberts had to say about the different kinds of tests that need to be done and that we just don't even have those tests yet to be able to do it is really important to understand.
This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We've been talking about this a lot on air about where we are in the financial markets. Bull market? Bear market? It's a fair question. Uh, let's put that to Michael Regan. Mike is Bloomberg Markets Live blog senior editor joining us from New Jersey. Uh, and he has this story in the magazine this week. So, Mike, talk to us because... We've seen quite large moves in both directions for the equity market to the point where we were in a bear market and then we came back and then we technically could have started a new bull market, but I don't know, where are we? <laughs> well, right, Carol, it's kind of, there's not really a textbook definition to say, okay, this is what a, a bull market or a bear market is, but the sort of rule of thumb that everyone uses is obviously once you drop 20% from a peak, you're in a bear market. Uh, but uh, a lot of people think that if a bull market can then be defined as a 20% gain from that low. So we have seen that. We've seen the S&P up more than 20% from its its low in on March 23rd. The problem is that the worst bear markets in history are famous for having episodes where the, the market rebounds significantly, more than 20%, say. It happened during the financial crisis uh, at the end of 2008 and in the early 2009. But ultimately, the, the low uh, has yet to come. Um, historically, if you look how long it takes for the S&P to find that bottom, to find that low point in a bear market, it ta- usually takes a long time, something like 370 trading days on average, uh, putting some numbers crunched by my colleague Cameron Christ. So uh, obviously there's a lot of disparity in that. Um, the, look at, say, the crash of 1929. Uh, the bottom wasn't uh, found until 1932. Um, in the 2008-9 uh, example, you know, the market peaked in 2007. The, the low wasn't found until 2009. Um, and if you go all the way back to 1987, that, that was the shortest time it took to, to reach a low. Uh, it was something like 74 trading days. So if you look at this episode, that low we reached in March was only about 23 days after <laughs> the last record in the S&P 500. So, so historically, it would just be unprecedented to see that low reached in such a short amount of time. Right. All right. So Joel Weber, also with this editor of the magazine. And, you know, Joel, it, it falls to you, lucky for us, and maybe unfortunately for you to sort of synthesize all of this and, and understand the financial markets in the context of the economy and the world of business. And we are reminded so often that the markets are not uh, the economy. How did you approach this story? Uh, well, uh, first of all, it's great to hear Mike's voice. Uh, it feels like it's been way too long, and, and your guys' as well. Um, well, we talked to you yesterday, so... Uh. <laughs> that is true. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting lonely. I'm getting lonely. <laughs> you know, look, like the, I think the backdrop for everything, for a lot of people here, is obviously the unemployment numbers. But, you know, here in the middle of all this, obviously the market's trying to figure out what to make of it. And yeah. I the, the numbers that Mike... Um, has in this story are just staggering to, you know, go from this, like, highest high to lowest low in just, like, a matter of days, really. Um, and and I what I see when I look at it all is the market's trying to figure out what it all means. And, and um, you know, it, it really wants this to be over is the other thing. And I think we're seeing that even today. Um, it's just desperately wanting to, like, get around the corner. 
And I'm not so sure that that, you know, and that's part of what Mike has in the story is like, I'm not so sure, um, you know, that's going to be um, what we what we get to live through. Um, but, you know, Mike, I think the other thing, and this is in your story as well, um, is the poster of Jerome Powell that you have on your wall, um, <laughs> which is a joke. But, but you know, like, is it though? You know, I was just going to say, I bet, you know, it could I'll happen. <laughs> Um, because the other thing that's happening here, obviously, is that traders know you do not fight the Fed. Yeah, and that's where, you know, uh, as much as I just cited a bunch of historical <laughs> precedents, it's very difficult in this current situation to really go back and compare it to anything in history because it's so unique. It's so unlike anything we've seen in history. Um, and the response from the Federal Reserve and the government, that quick, massive, do-whatever-it-takes response uh, from both the Fed and Congress is, is completely unprecedented in the history of, you know, economic cycles that the markets had to work through uh, before. So part of, you know, uh, one of the things that really caught my eye this week was that Goldman Sachs, their strategist, came out and said they think there's a good chance this, that low is the low, that it, it's been set, that this stimulus uh, from the Fed and, and the Congress is so great um, that regardless of how ugly the, the data is going to be coming up, and, and it's going to be nasty. I mean, uh, J.P. Morgan estimating something like a 40% contraction in GDP. I mean, just can't even get my head around that, right? I know. It's just mind-boggling uh, to think about. And, you know, the earnings, the dip in earnings is going <laughs> to be just as bad. You know, I think it's like a 30-some percent uh, decrease expected in the, the second quarter. Um but when you have that much support from the Fed, when, you know, sort of suppressing interest rates, buying up all sorts of assets uh, to keep that liquidity flowing, it's very hard to, to put 100% faith into those historical precedents because of this, uh, you know, unprecedented response that we're seeing. But, you know, that said, there's just a lot of bad news that we still have to work through. Um, it's, it's really hard to imagine this market continuing on this sort of v-shaped well, recovery that it's in well and the thing is you know you're right and if one of the big ifs out there as you write in your story is if infections come back a second time i mean then all bets are off what i wanted to ask you though mike is the rally as respected when it's courtesy of the fed and policymakers and big stimulus programs uh, you know, there were there will always be people that sort of um, roll their eyes or you know pinch their nose at at the notion that the Fed is is doing so much um, to support the market. But let's be honest. I mean, what else could they do? This is such a a shock to the economy. They're you know they had to respond aggressively uh, and with force, as did the the Congress and the government. Um, so I, I think eventually there's you know, the worry about a day of reckoning. What does this all mean down the line? How does the Fed ever exit from this uh, great support it's given to the economy? Um, when do we know it's, it's sort of healthy enough to begin exiting, and what happens then? I mean, we already saw sort of a crack in markets when uh, they started raising interest rates and started unwinding their quantitative easing uh, from the last cycle. So, you know, I think that the valid yeah. concern is not that they're doing it, but are they sort of pushing the can, kicking right. the can down the road and, and creating a problem we'll have to deal with eventually. Yeah. All right. Mike Regan, always good to catch up with you. 
writer, broadcaster, podcaster extraordinaire. Uh, check out his podcast. Check out Owner his story. Owner of J. Powell Poster. And, yeah, exactly. Come on, Mike. You can come clean with it's us. Fine. It's we, fine. We are going to still love you. Yeah, exactly. We're going to love you even more. All right. <laughs> uh, check out that story. It's on the Bloomberg today and on Bloomberg.com in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. We're also watching some big political news today. Uh, So let's get into that with Jennifer Epstein. She's political reporter at Bloomberg News. She's on the phone from Washington. So Joe Joe Biden um, getting a big endorsement from his former boss, uh, Barack Obama. We've got uh, a little snippet of what uh, Mr. Obama, former President Obama, had to say. The kind of leadership that's guided by knowledge and experience, honesty and humility, empathy and grace. That kind of leadership doesn't just belong in our state capitals and mayor's offices. It belongs in the White House. And that's why I'm so proud to endorse Joe Biden for president of the United States. Choosing Joe to be my vice president was one of the best decisions I ever made. And he became a close friend. And I believe Joe has all the qualities we need in a president right now. So, Jennifer, okay, nice. Thank you, President Obama. It took him long (laughs) enough. Yeah, you know, it's kind of a weird thing because President Obama made clear even before Joe Biden got into this race just about a year ago at this point um, that he wasn't going to endorse anybody until the whole primary had been decided by the the voters of the party. And yet, you know, there's still this kind of thing where it's like, okay, this guy was your vice president and close friend for the last eight years. Um, you know, so there was sort of an expectation and a little bit of a dishonest argument sometimes from President Trump and other Republicans saying, well, you know, they clearly see why Biden shouldn't be president or, or Obama would be endorsing him already, which is, you know, um, you know, but disingenuous. But here uh, you have this endorsement from Obama today. It was really an effort, I think, to get Democrats and people who are persuadable to vote for Biden to start thinking seriously about doing that, um, even if they had supported Bernie Sanders or somebody else in the primary. Uh, but now the focus is solely on beating Trump in November. Um, and that's where all the energy for anybody who doesn't like Trump uh, needs to go in President Obama's view. All right. So speaking of that energy, uh, Jennifer, uh, how much energy do we think we'll see from former President Obama, maybe former First Lady Michelle Obama uh, really out there? um, And I guess out there is a relative term in in this current environment. Right. Um, What is it going to look like now that the Obamas are engaged? Yeah, well, I think out there is is part of the challenge because there is the out there is the inside everybody's respective home in front of a camera. Um, so I think because presumably, think be, sorry to interrupt you, but like presumably in a more normal world, this would have been done at a huge rally, you know, like an Obama, you know, sort of a classic Obama, get them all riled yeah. up, you know, sort yeah. of situation. Right. Well, you know, I covered the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016 for Bloomberg News. And back then it was actually done similar way where there was a video put out by uh, Obama, and then that was very quickly followed by the announcement of a rally that he was going to right. do with Hillary Clinton. That rally ended up having to get rescheduled, and it finally did happen, and it ended up being um, not a great, it was a comp- complicated news day otherwise, so it was not didn't have as much of a splash as maybe they had wanted to, but it was still a big rally in North Carolina, 
in, in Charlotte um, that got plenty of media attention. And obviously that can't be done this time. Um, you know, it, it's unclear whether we're going to be able to have any kind of, you know, big traditional rallies at all between now and November for for Biden or for Trump. Uh, so in the in the meantime, I think that you will see uh, Obama do some more things digitally for Biden. I think that the, the exact terms of that are to be determined. I think it will be around the message and getting people to support Biden, but I think it will also be fundraising. Uh, that's an area where uh, Biden has a lot of ground to make up for. Um, he's he's you know hundreds of millions of dollars behind. Uh, the Trump campaign and the Republican National Committee in fundraising right now. And, um, you know, digital stuff costs money. It's not like somebody just sits at their computer and right. stuff. How uh, important how, that goes into it. How important is that in this race? I mean, I know I understand advertising and political advertising is very persuasive, very important. But I feel like you've got a president who has a four year track record or three and a half year track record, right? And so they've got that. And either people like that and want another four years or they're going to be those who don't like it. Is it as simplistic as that this time around? Well, I think that there are, there are a lot of people who are sort of in between. They like certain things that the president has done, not other things. They may have voted for him the last time and be having a bit of remorse or they might have not voted for him the last time and regretted that or be sort of on the fence where they say, well, you know, my pocketbook is doing well, let's say, even amid this, this crisis, they're still doing well because it's tax breaks and maybe they're even trying to find a way to maximize the stimulus money for themselves. So they say, okay, I'm doing well, but I don't agree with how the overall coronavirus response has gone. Or, you know, there are a million different permutations of that, or actually probably, you know, 150 or 200 million, however many people end up voting in this election. You know, for everybody, it's a, a specific different choice. Um, and, you know, it does cost money, not just for the ads, but just to have to have the outrage around get it, getting people out to vote, which is a big piece of this is going right. to be if Democrats are going to win, it's going to be because there is a significant surge in turnout, likely. Um, and that that will take a lot of energy. There's also going to be the complication of, of the extent to which um, mail-in voting or right. early voting or other accommodations yeah. are made. Um, you know, we don't, it's hard to know whether there's going to be another surge in coronavirus in the fall and whether that will have already started fall or winter and whether that will already have started by November 3rd. And how it's going to affect day. Yeah, 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 absolutely. All right, we're going to leave it there. Love Jennifer Epstein. Follow her on Twitter at Jen Epps. Uh, she is on top of it. Uh, one of our top political reporters, as she said, has the context of covering uh, the 2016 election. And it's going to be fascinating to compare and contrast throughout. We're going to be keeping in touch with her. It's a new normal, this sure. election year, yeah. right? Mail-in votes, sh- online so endorsements, different. tweets, all of it. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.